0: I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org.
1: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
2: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of I-94, live at Pills and Community Books. Please give a very warm welcome to the woman sitting right next to me. Her name is Corinne Halbert. She is the author of Hate Baby Comics, and tonight's discussion is all about horror comics in the United States. Please give it up for Corinne. Thank you. So we're going to start. This is kind of an odd show in the sense that we're discussing an entire genre. Uh, with an author who who makes them. So we're kind of going to be going back and forth, and just to kind of get you guys into what we're talking about, um, Corinne's brought some examples from both the old days and the modern days, but um, I actually happen to be a big comic book collector, and I actually bizarrely spent a lot of time writing and researching about this stuff. So let me give you a little potted history of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, In my hand, and, and radio folks out there, unfortunately you can't see this, but I'm holding a copy of a book that was published by a company called EC, Entertaining Comics. During the 1950s, uh, Entertaining Comics was at one point the biggest comic book company in the land, bigger than uh, National Comics, which published Superman, and bigger than what would become Marvel Comics, at the time they were called Timely. EC produced a line of comics that were drawn by some of the best artists in the entire planet, frankly, that that had ever worked in the comics medium. Guys like Wally Wood, uh, Graham Ingalls, Jack Kamen. Uh, these people, Bernie Krigstein. These people were real stylists, and and they produced a body of work that has influenced everything from television shows and film to novels and popular culture. You probably know them best from a, a book they published called Tales from the Crypt, which was made into I think two TV series. Am I correct on that? At least one. No one for sure. At least yeah. one um, that published. You know, they, they were publishing um, ironic kind of O. Henry style uh, shock horror comics. Now you may be wondering why EC comics isn't a household name in fact the, the public the only title that still remains from EC comics in the marketplace is something called Mad magazine, which was mm-hmm. their attempt to uh, survive after what happened to them in 1954 in 1954 they were hauled in front of Congress uh, claiming that by, a, by a, a congressional committee that had been convinced by a flim flam artist and a kind of pseudo scientist um, that comic books were detrimental to the uh, health of American children.
1: Yeah, I looked this up. It was called the Senate Subcommittee of Juvenile Delinquency.
2: That's correct. <laughs> uh, and so this, this and the, the funny thing is people don't remember this actual fact about it. The, the committee at the Congress actually found that the quack who, who pointed this out and was making this up was, was full of it. Uh, they actually absolved the comic book companies of this. But the problem was that the publisher, William Gaines, of EC Comics had gone up and testified before Congress and he was very nervous and apparently he'd taken a bunch of I guess no dose before going in. So he's sweating, <laughs> he's pale, and he he uh, gives ludicrous answers. It was almost oh, like an yes. Elon Musk kind of performance in front of or a, you know, in front of a congressional committee. Which you want to do. At one point, he was asked by a congressman, "How could you make?" And it was he was holding up a drawing of, of Jack Kamen, a severed head. Uh, How would you make this less gory for kids? And he would say, "Well, maybe we would cut away. We wouldn't show the blood gushing from the neck." You know, <laughs> answers that were <laughs> just completely inappropriate to say. To Esther's Cuff. Offer, who was the, the senator from, I believe, from Indiana at the time, who was, who was doing this thing? So, horror comics, uh, as we really think of them today and the, the genesis of them, existed in this very small time period in the 1950s, really about 1949, 1950, to about 1955, when something called the Comics Code Authority came in. But I do want to stress that while when horror comics were in vogue, they were huge. Everybody, and this is, a, I'm holding up a copy of an Archie comic book. And yes, that's Archie Comics, like Betty and Veronica, okay? They produced a a whole line of gruesome horror comics as well, showing you that comic book companies know where the bucks are and they always try to produce that, okay? So even squeaky clean Betty and Veronica would publish uh, Chamber of Chills, Tomb of Terror, Black Cat Mystery, Um, all of them which, which were fairly salacious, I guess, as comics go. What came out of this, though, was a body of work um, that is still being plumbed today. These, these stories are really actually still being widely reprinted. There's a publication out called uh, Haunted Horror. Craig Yeo Books from Fantagraphics publishes a lot of these comics. The EC books are so classic they've been reprinted not once but about 17 times in all kinds of formats from these glorious hardcovers to, uh, in fact, uh, you've got some yeah. of the EC kitchen sink reprints, right? Mm-hmm. Gladstone reprints. So they, they still hold up. You know, people are still reading this today. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about because even though horror comics as we typically think of them in America ended after a brief shining four-year run, they've actually influenced a ton of stuff going on today that's coming onto the market right now. and There's a giant stack of books, including, of course, Hate Baby right here from our author. And I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about this with you. Sure. How influenced were you by these classic horror comics when you started out writing and even thinking about making
3: comics? Uh, Very uh, influenced. Um, To be honest, the biggest cartoonist that influenced Hate Baby is Charles Burns. And he did Black Hole, which is not known as a horror comic, but there's some horror elements to it. Um, Arms in
4: the face, though. I would say that definitely Black Hole. Black Hole's not considered a horror comic? I mean...
3: I think it's just considered a graphic novel, okay. but it definitely has some, some pretty horror intense elements. horror body yeah, horror yeah, stuff going that. on. Yeah, Sugar um, Skull,
2: by the way, is his new newest one. It's the three part yeah, one, yeah. If yeah, you guys are everyth- interested in Charles Burns, definitely definitely check it out.
3: Yeah, everything I've read by him is like amazing. And the artwork, that really high contrast black and white. Um. really knocked my socks off. And, I mean, I've been looking at, you know, the Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, you know. Uh, I love all the old uh, illustrators like Basil Wolverton and Graham Engels, Jack Davis. Um, their artwork is unbelievable. So I'm always trying to read these, reread them, um, you know, for inspiration for, for my new work.
4: Uh First of all, welcome, Karen. Um, I actually met Corinne at the Wildlife Flea Show at Co Prosperity Sphere, which Jamie runs.
3: Oh yes.
4: And um,
3: love Co Prosperity. Turns Sphere. Turns
4: out I know her husband, but you also work at Quimby's, which yep. is uh, basically you know ground zero for this type of work. Are there any um, contemporary? Well, actually, first before we go into a question, I wanted to read a quote when we were talking about the Comics Code from the Children's Book Committee. This came out in 1950, and this is in my handwriting, so I'm going to have to. Uh, um, but it said the violence of the sub ma- subject matter, the crudity, the cheapness of the paper, the strain on young eyes, mm. and the spoiling of taste for better literature was the uh, was the quote that they used. Uh, this was, you know, yeah, it was from Doctor Frederick Wortham too. Yes, who was that's the, the guy. The quack. Uh, who, uh, all the good stuff. All <laughs> your, yes, of course, the stuff you buy comics for. You know, and he had a a book. Uh, and I, the titles is "Seduction a, of the Innocent." The seduction of the innocent, and I was—I picked up a, a history of uh, horror comics, and they—they they had quotes from it. And it's that's just like the tip of the iceberg. The guy was—it's um, kind of like like the Satanic Panic of the '90s, yeah. just where people were just like, "This is what it's about." and Your kids are going to worship Satan and kill people, and, and unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, what I did want to ask you is, what came first? I guess were you um when you were you start what you told me you started working at quimby's about three years ago Mm -hmm. how long have you been interested in horror comics um i have the current hate baby where you uh, do a wonderful uh, illustrations of the the seven deadly sins Um, and you have a lot of non-imagery yes and things like that i was wondering if that comes from a Catholic background. Yes, it does come from absolutely. Catholic. you Want to touch on that a little sure.
3: bit? Sure. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Massachusetts, and uh, for from the time I was three till about eleven, my mother, my brother, and I lived with my grandparents, uh, two of my favorite people ever. And my grandmother was a very devout Catholic, and I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through fifth grade. So. Uh, you know, going to church twice a week, um, you know, the imagery uh, and, you know, the ethos basically has been crammed down my throat (laughs) since a young age. Um, Terrifying,
0: terrifying Yeah, I mean,
3: it's kind of like, it's kind of like a love-hate thing, like, I don't believe in organized religion, but I I love the imagery, um, and I've always been very drawn to it. It's kind of psychedelic. Um, You know, the stained glass windows, uh, all the idols. um, So, yeah, um, definitely uh, grew up in an Irish Catholic environment.
4: And has your family seen your work?
3: Yes. um, (laughs) So um, my mom is very supportive of everything I do, and she loves me very much. Um, She often says, you know, why can't you just... Paint something nice, <laughs> and you know I have to, you know, kind of hit home that you can, you can make very dark things, or you know, be into this subject matter, but also be a happy person. And she, she knows that. But I think anything is just out of concern for me, um, you know. And um, I just, I, my grandfather, who's ninety three, I just, I hope to God he never learns how to google my name (laughs) that's all i can say i hope that never happens because i don't want to upset him uh for no reason you know
4: well my experience has been you know having met you you're a very nice person even in a lot of the guys men and women that i know they're like in extreme metal bands they're all like goofy like happy-go-lucky a lot of them are stoners you know and that's that's always been like they write these songs you know just to you know I, I, don't, I can't think of something off the top of my head, but then you made them and you're like, these guys are nothing like what they sing about. And is it an outlet?
3: Yeah, um, I think all, any form of creativity, I think, however serious you are about it, whether you're doing it for career or just for uh, pleasure, um, it's definitely you're letting something out. Um, that At least that's my belief.
2: You know, it's interesting because when we talk about horror books or true crime books, you know, people always say, oh, well, you know, how can you be interested in this stuff? It's so morbid, it's so gory. Mm-hmm. And they they think that that is a reflection somehow on you or your personality, but no one says that about people that, you know, read romance novels yeah. or read literary fiction. Uh, most of the most screwed up people I know read a lot of literary fiction. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's a strange thing because horror, um, there's a long strain of morbid tale telling in the Western culture. Absolutely. It goes all the way back as far as you can think to Beowulf and probably beyond that of creepy things in the night. Yeah, you know, creepy things in the night, bad things happening. You're talking about Grimm's fairy tales. Some of those are are far more macabre than you would find in, in a copy of Black Cat Mystery or whatever. Some of the stuff that people were rebelling against, particularly in the Senate committee that we were talking about earlier, a lot of the messaging in some of the EC comics and stuff was actually very coded. They were talking about racism. They were talking about people at war. They were talking about uh, victims. A lot of it, if you actually read it at more than a surface level, you realize the, the cartoonists were actually making political statements with their work. And Ethical that actually too, got correct? Them, yes. Ethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ethical and political statements. And that is actually kind of what brought a lot of attention to them. And it's interesting because horror has oftentimes been used to make Ethical and, and political statements. One of your favorite authors, Stephen King, of course, is is noted for that. Absolutely. You yeah. know, and that that's a big thing. I wondered if in in your work, do you try to code things and and try to talk about greater things? I mean, obviously, you're talking about a lot of things that you grew up with in the Catholic Church, but are you trying to make greater points, but couching it in the horror idiom?
3: Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, if anything, I. I clearly have some sort of bone to pick with the Catholic Church. Um, I don't know how intentional that is or not. Um, I, I, When I was younger, I did uh, pretty blatant political work. It was mostly film video. Um, and as I've gotten older, I actually really don't like to... Um, approach politics in my artwork just because that's not what it's about uh it's about the horror it's about the aesthetic um it's about kind of like escaping that stuff it's like a fantasy uh like my fantasy world essentially um and i'm trying to like escape the nightmare that is the reality of politics if that makes any sense yeah it makes a lot of sense
1: um speaking of the aesthetic so i'm i'm pretty much totally new to comics okay um and Jamie let me borrow that that compilation of the Vault of Horror, that really nice hardcover. And there's an intro in there from um Robert Lawrence Stein, uh-huh. also known as R. L. Stein, the uh the author of the Goosebumps series. Yeah. Um and he said he's he's never been scared. Of of any of the horror stuff, he never, you know, he huh. never got the feeling of terror. They were always funny to him. Interesting. There was always an element of humor that he really liked about the vault of horror comics, and that he tried to carry into his work. Um, so a lot of what I read in there, and then in the um, what's the Japanese author? Ito. Uh, Junji Ito. Junji Ito. A lot these of these are th- my favorites. Yeah, Ito. <laughs> his illustrations are amazing, and his stories are really weird. Mm-hmm. But none of them really scared me the way that like oh. like. I don't know. Stephen King, Misery terrified okay. me when I was younger. Jaws. Or would you like, say
4: it's more unnerving? The it's just
1: really weird. It's fascinating because it's so weird. Like I would never, I would never think to. I would never think about a story or anything happening where somebody is dying of holes form slowly forming all over their body. You know.
3: The interesting thing about Junji Ito, and in Shiver, actually, there's Mm -hmm. uh, some writing he does about, like, the inspiration um, behind the stories. I think one of the interesting things he talked about is when he was a little boy that he got very afraid Uh, Of ghost stories, and I'm the kind of person that when I watch horror movies with my husband who's sitting over there, um, you know, depending on the movie, some of them are just goofy, but, like, I actually get really scared, and, like, that's part of it for me is, like, I do actually get scared. With Junji Ito, it's not every single story, but some of them are so unsettling because... (laughs) he um he describes a couple of them as being kind of the foundation is like things that have really happened to him so because he's mixing this like very normal mundane human thing with the you know phantasm uh you know fantastic supernatural type thing to me it feels very real yeah, in yeah, a yeah, weird yeah, way yeah, yeah. so it, it creeps me out there, and i love it there was a um, <laughs>
1: a little while ago Stephen King or who whoever published it reissued pet cemetery. Uh-huh. Like he he wrote a foreword to it <clears throat> saying that that was by far the scariest. The thing that he wrote that scared himself the most. Oh wow. <laughs> he had to tuck it away in a drawer for a while before he finished it.
3: Oh wow. Have
1: you ever written anything that just creeped you out a little bit or a lot?
3: I don't think I've personally written anything that freaked me out. I've definitely read things uh, that have freaked me out, like Thomas oh, yeah. uh, Who has that? some great
4: stories. Or author. Contemporary. He's, he's still from, alive, right? Yep, and yeah. he's
3: from Michigan. I think he's from Detroit or okay. the surrounding area. Um, yeah, we are too. We don't, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we don't all know each other.
3: But, um, <laughs> I mean, some of his stories are like, yeah, oh I've my it. God, it's like a gut punch. What's the
4: Ito, it's one story, is it Spirals?
3: Uh, Gyo. Gyo. This is my favorite. I brought it. Uzumaki is the Spirals, and that one's more like this, where it's like serialized short stories. Okay, is is that the one with the the scissors in
4: the ear? Is that Spirals? It is Uzumaki. uh, Yeah,
3: Yeah. it's got to be.
4: Yeah, that does hurt. Well, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we talk about this sometimes on the show, scenes in literature that are unforgettable, Mm. such as, you know the canoe scene and deliverance, you know, these things that you'll read a book. You might not remember anything about it, but there's a, in spirals is based, uh, by Uzumaki is, you know, people see spirals and then they attack themselves. And there's a scene where it's a woman, I believe just jams a pair of like sewing scissors in her ear. And, uh, that was one of those. I remember reading that, and and my stepdaughter turned me on. It was a mocking I'm like, oh, this is a good thing for a child to be. <laughs> <weird."> <laughs> like, you know? And and, and it, it, she's she's a smart kid, and I, and I'm joking in some ways. But it was like I, I just I'll never forget that because I have a thing about ears and scissors being jammed in them. Yeah, so <laughs> I just don't want it to happen.
2: Yeah, like
3: absolutely. <laughs>
4: That's something you've worried about deeply over the
3: years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Scissor yeah. attacks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it's like in
3: Lucio, Lucio Fulci's zombie. There's the the famous eyeball scene. A lot of the Italian horror directors uh, have like this fetish for like popping. eyeball yeah, gels, stabbing. Yeah. So it's kind of like an ear version of that. It yeah. is a little unforgettable. Yes.
2: <laughs> I would agree with you. Though, that the the EC comics and their stuff wasn't necessarily. Scary, yeah. It was more of an aesthetic of um, more ironic comeuppance. Yes, in a lot of ways. Uh, Most of the stories, and again, it's hard to. You kind of have to describe what was around them. They had a very kind of campy setting where the crypt keeper would introduce the story, or um, I cannot remember who the the vault keeper's the vault keeper's name was, but these kind of uh, monsters. Wasn't the witch the vault keeper? The witch was Tales from the Crypt. Oh, okay. And she introduced, uh, you know, every story, and it was always like, you know, here's, you know, Neil and Maggie are in the country on a dark road. Let's see what happens to them. And of course, something always. Wait, the happens Tales to from
1: remember. the Crypt host is, is the hostess? Yes, that was a woman. Hostess.
2: Yes, she's the witch. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You learn something new every day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but I mean, most of the things that happened were generally, um, they were they were telling tales about people who we're doing bad things and then we're punished for them. One of the, one of the yes. interesting things is that, um, especially I think in tales from the crypt, it was always established that people were trying to either steal money or run away with someone's wife or whatever. Yep. And they were always caught and they were punished in a sadistic way for it. Um, that's not like the kind of horror that, I mean, a. Wilkie Collins did, or, or a Stephen King did, or, or a, you know, I'm trying to think of some contemporary authors. It's not even like the, the contemporary horror that's, that's sitting in front of us right here that we're going to talk about in a little bit, where that is a much more, I would say, physical, aesthetic attempt to terrify, where this was more of an attempt to entertain and shock and there's, I think there's a pretty clear difference between them. Absolutely. Um, aesthetically also, what is notable about the EC books, and I touched on this earlier, they're extremely well drawn. They're all Ugh. in a very clean line style. Only Graham, Ghastly Graham Ingalls, I should call him his proper name, who was, and this is a Graham Ingalls panel, you guys can see here. He was um, a German artist, and he was known for his work on a title called Impact, because he wrote stories that were very coded about the Jewish experience in the Holocaust. So, most of his stories always had a kind of a subtext because I believe he escaped Germany during that period. And so he ended up in New York drawing these comics. But he was a, a genuine fine artist. He had been a fine artist and came to the illustrative medium of comics. A lot of those guys did tons of output too, as yes, correct? Yes, they did. They worked in sweatshops basically. So, yeah. you know, the other thing about the, the business at this time, you know, what, what Corinne's doing is she's sitting in, I presume, sitting in your house with your husband alone and you're working on your comic. And when it's done, you you put it out. and That's really how most comics are done today. Most comics have a writer an artist who can either be a penciler or an inker or both, a colorist, a letterer and then there's an editor. These were all pre-packaged. Like basically you'd have a shop that was run generally by an artist and one of the most famous was the Eisner Shop. There was another called the Eiger Shop uh, named after two leading artists in the 1940s. Will Eisner was, was one of them and they would get guys all around a table and they basically did them assembly line style. So while guys like Jack Davis and, and Wally Wood would do a story from start to finish, they wouldn't ink it, they would just pencil it and then they'd hand it off to somebody else. And it was so they could do a large number of pages a day because the, the, the truth is these comics were actually big. You know what I mean? There were 44 pages. That's a lot of material. If you think about drawing all these panels and how much time it actually takes to draw something.
4: Mm-hmm. They said there were like 400 titles coming out at a month yes. at one point. In so. American comics, it yeah. was
2: the biggest selling magazine periodical anywhere in the world was the American comic book across everything. And this was because, we should also point out the reason was, um, American GIs returning from World War II um, tended to purchase large amounts of comic books because people and people forget this, uh, many of the people that were fighting uh, in the army um, were barely literate. They didn't necessarily I was going to say that schools. but... No, it's true. yeah. And the army um, had a program it was actually done by Will Eisner, the artist, where they drew comic books about how to fix machines, how to fix engines, how to repair stuff, how to prepare your boots and stuff like that. Uh, it was called ps actually, and they sent it out to all members of the armed forces. millions of copies of this. So GI's got a, a taste for getting things in a comic book format. You know it was it was kind of it, it was thought that that was the most efficient way to get the material across. And, and it is. I mean, actually, if you really think about it, words fused with pictures are the most, you know, uh, e- it's the easiest way for us as human beings to absorb information. So when G.I.s got out of the war, they'd been reading all these comic books and they came home and Bam! They wanted to read about Superman or Batman or uh, The Crypt Keeper, The Old Witch. And the the market just exploded. Um, And people forget this because comic books nowadays, um, if a comic book sells 30,000 copies, that's enormous. Superman at its heyday sold something like 8 million copies an issue. And there were about seven Superman titles. Lois Lane had her own title. Jimmy Olsen had a title. The Dog had a title. Okay? I mean everybody had a title. So these were mainstream media. This was like the Netflix of its day. Everybody read these. So I realize it sounds kind of quaint to go back and say, well, there's a congressional hearing about this. You're probably thinking, why would anybody have a congressional hearing about these comic books? It was because they really were the dominant entertainment medium. And that's one of the reasons they're so influential to this day. Um, And it's interesting looking at how they've influenced everything else. In the second part of the show, we're going to kind of get to the, the tendrils of it. But the other thing that's not often mentioned is that serious authors actually also contributed to these. Mickey Spillane, Ross McDonald, uh, a number of, Dashiell Hammett, they all wrote for comic books, and some of the stuff they wrote was horror comics because they were working writers. Philip K. Dick wrote for comics as well.
1: Was there Twilight Zone crossover?
2: Um, not as much because it was later, okay. but some of the people that worked Twilight on the Twilight Zone was yes, late 50s, correct? It, yeah, late 50s, early 60s. It, they did. They had. They had some experience writing for the comic book periodicals, so, so they took some of those lessons. Because the other thing that comic books teach you to do is write a lot of information in a very compressed style, and that became one of the hallmarks of modern serial fiction. You know, when we talk about books today that are deconstructed or whatever, these these stories are only about four to five pages long, and you'd get like ten of them in a book. So there was a lot of information crammed into these little panels, and. Uh, that is a really remarkable achievement. Even if you look at some of the modern stuff here, if you look at a modern book, you'll notice big splash pages, you'll notice lush paint. The, the quality is inarguably better. This is done on, on really cheap, crappy newsprint. But if you look at it and, and you kind of just put the books side by side, you'll notice that the panels are very small and there's a lot of information. There's more content in here. Yeah. There's a great deal more content. They were tra- attempting to basically tell a whole short story and create a whole atmosphere. In, in four or five pages. And yeah. that's really remarkable.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know.
4: um, in the 70s, I read too in the this Illustrated History, they did a lot of Poe. Uh, Poe was often a common author that they would take the stories uh, from Poe and illustrate and, them, and, and, illustrate
2: them and, and serialize them. And Ray Bradbury as well. Oh. Ray Bradbury had a, a long second life in the comic books. But it's interesting. And, you know, We have to take a, a quick break in a second for uh, station ID and for underwriting. But I, I kind of want to draw a bow underneath this. If you, if anybody out there is interested in these books, they are very widely available. They're available in the public library. They're available on book stands. These things have never gone out of print, and if you think about things that have never gone out of print, that's pretty remarkable because yeah. almost everything goes out of print.
1: You know. what, I mean?
2: what else? What, I mean, the Bible doesn't go out of print. You know? Right, the Bible. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, like, it you think should. It, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I believe you could probably still get copies of the Little Red Book or something like that, but I don't know. But no, I mean, when you think about it, that's that's a remarkable run for entertainment that was disposable. This stuff was meant to be read by kids and thrown away.
4: You like that joke, didn't you, Neil? Neil did. Neil's our son.
2: With that, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back after the short break. Please give it up for Corinne Halbert.
3: Thank you. <laughs>
2: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another i nInety four live at Pills and Community Books. You know, I realized I forgot to introduce ourselves. We were so excited to get into this. I usually do that. I usually tell who you're listening to. i nInety four is Jeremy Kitchen. Hello, Mr. Michael Sack. Hello, and I'm Jamie Tracker. And of course, today we are with Corinne Halbert. She is the author, the drawer, is the cartoonist, that, I sure. guess one, sure, why not, of Hate Baby Comics, which is right here in my hot little hand, which you can't see because radio is an antediluvian medium. Please give it up for Corinne. Thank you. We talked in the first uh, half of the show about the roots of horror comics in the 1950s. I think it's time you've, you've brought a good selection of stuff from the modern era, including something by one of my personal favorite artists, Al Columbia. Let's dive right in. I mean, the the horror comics... Uh, have enjoyed an enormous resurgence. What what do you uh, attribute that to?
3: Well, I think that uh, two things that humans are always attracted to and inspired by are sex and death. And horror uh, often uh, covers both topics, hopefully, if You it's certainly good. do. <laughs> you're, you know, Corinne certainly
4: does in her work. I, I um, was actually laughing earlier because... Often both at the same time. When we were talking about you know the the Catholic Church and and the representation and, and, and the, you know, the, the goats having orgies with nuns appear in some of your work. I, I thought that that was a, apropos of both, so you fit right in the both categories, sex and death, quite well.
3: Those are two of my biggest inspirations. Um, yeah, so um, Al Columbia happens to be one of my all-time favorite artists, and Pim and Francie, uh, The Golden Bear Days, this is one of my favorite books. Uh, about a, maybe a year ago, I don't know exactly, um, you would see this listed on eBay and Amazon for like $500, what? this book, but then it went back into print, so now it's just the normal. You know. What
4: era is that current?
3: Uh, I think 2014.
4: Yeah, it's just a few oh, years ago. Some book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Something like that. Uh, 2009. The illustration is really yeah. cool. Um, but so then it went, I uh, think it's, is it Fantagraphics? I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, um, so it was out of print for a while, and then thankfully they put it back in print. But I never would have <laughs> sold it anyways. But um, uh, this just happens to be one of my favorite books. Um, I've, I've heard people say, you know, it's not truly a graphic novel, and I can understand that argument. I mean, it's more like a collection of his amazing drawings and little short strips. In um, other words, it's not
1: a fluid story?
3: Yeah, okay. because um, he is the type of artist that apparently will just, you know he'll make this amazing body of work and then he'll just tear it up, you know? Um, so a little bit of that kind of thing going on. Um, but this is compiling a ton of his absolutely gorgeous drawings and, Um, So that's one of my favorite books of all time. I also brought Guy Davis's The Marquis, which is basically um, an 18th century kind of like fake France. And the main character uh, can see demons or devils uh, that are often disguised as just humans. And he, he slays them. That's kind of the arc of that story. I also brought uh, Harrow County, which is Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook, and that's, um, I'm not sure if it just ended or if it's coming to its end, but it has something like eight trade paperbacks, um, and it's about a witch and uh, all sorts of demons and stuff, and the artwork is absolutely unbelievably gorgeous.
4: We carry those at Chicago Public Library. I'm not familiar with the other titles, but I'm going to write all these down.
3: Yeah, this one's really good.
4: I wanted to ask you um, before we go right any further, mm-hmm. um, if you are familiar with the case of Mike Deanna,
3: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, l-
4: so in the nineties, I just wanted to share this with everyone. There was this cartoonist named Mike. Is it Mike Deanna or Mike Deanna?
3: I say Deanna. I'm not sure. If okay, it's let's
4: say Mike Deanna for keep yeah. it keep it uh, simple. He made this comic called Boiled Angel, and if you, think of everything that offends you, and that that was in at times a hundred. And yes. he happened to be a custodian <laughs> at elementary school. And he was Xeroxing it at work, and one of them got jammed in the uh, copy machine, and he didn't know. His principal found it. They actually, because of his comics, accused him. Do you remember that Gainesville, there was a serial killer in Florida named Gainesville, and he became a prime suspect because of his comics, which is, it reminded me also of the, uh, what are those kids in Arkansas? West Memphis 3. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. And uh. I met him. He actually did a uh, at Quimby's in the 90s when it was still over on Damon. He he had a – they were selling his art, and then he was in Florida. He was locked up, and then they had another tour of his work, and you could buy it. We still have – my wife and I have a poster of his going up the stairs. And he was, like, the nicest. Like, he looked like Kurt Cobain. He had the same hair. He was probably stoned and, like, the nicest dude you've ever met. And he was the first cartoonist in history to ever be arrested for obscenity and actually went all the way to the Supreme Court and it was overturned and he was released. He was jailed. Uh, That's what he was in prison for. He was banned draw
3: draw in the state of Florida. Yeah, he
4: could not draw in the state of Florida. Mm. And he went to prison. Yes, he served um, 90 days. Served 90 days in uh, Dallas County, yeah. For drawing, for his drawing. And I think sometimes in this day and age, um, you know, we tend to forget about things like the Comics Code and, you know, where we can go so quickly as a country into censorship. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, kids now like, you know, heavy metal and punk rock and all those things are very commonplace. And you see little kids with mohawks and things like that. But it's still, um, you know, these were things that were used as tools for law enforcement to prosecute innocent people based on their looks. And obviously we have that still in the African-American community. But um, I just sometimes – I like to give a little history lesson on those things because where we're at today is because guys like him and the people that stood up and for the Comics Code, you know, came before. Yep. And now, you know, now you can, you know, yeah. pave the way and hopefully never go to jail <laughs> right, for we your yeah. drawings. <laughs> One
2: of the people that helped Dana was actually something called the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which yeah. we should point out because um, while the ACLU helped Dana in his, uh, in his uh, trial – it was actually a group of comic book store owners who were worried about getting shut down next that put up the seed money for it. And the the CB uh, LDF uh, holds annual now benefits and stuff to raise money for cartoonists or people who are being targeted um, for censorship or in in all parts of the world.
1: Has any of this anger been um, directed at you? Anger, resentment, or, or or lawsuits
4: even?
3: Oh no, lawsuits. Emails? <laughs> any see.
4: emails or is anybody? I was going to ask that too.
3: I get some comments on posts, but to be honest with you, it's like, I feel very lucky. I feel like I've gotten like 98% like positive reaction comments, but you know, every once in a while I'll like somebody on my Facebook page on a really old post of like a Baphomet type image in another language, to, uh, told me to something myself and then, you know, basically blatantly <laughs> said it, so I just, you
4: know. I thought it was Baphomet. I'm glad you cleared that up for me. Yeah. What oh, yeah. It? What, is, what is it? <laughs> it's like the satanic goat. Uh, right like here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Gotcha.
3: Okay. Closest thing to a deity I would worship.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Can't go wrong with Baphomet. satanic goats. But
2: it is interesting that since uh, the Deanna trial, Horror comics are now being put out again by major publishers. You know, Deanna's books were um, self-released. I actually can't say the name of his publishing house because it is a square. (laughs) But this is uh, put up by Dark Horse, which is, uh, in fact, in our area, right? That Dark Horse is right around Michigan, I think. Michigan, Minnesota. I guess I didn't realize that. Uh, Harrow County, which is done by the American comic uh, artist Colin Bunn, uh, is also a Dark Horse book. Um, Lock and Key which is by Stephen King's son, Joe Harris. You might know him from A Heart-Shaped Box, which is a bestseller. Joe Hill. Joe Hill, Joe Hill excuse me. Uh, wrote um, Lock and Key, which is now being made into a series for either Netflix or Sci-Fi, I believe. But that was a long-running, well-selling uh, comic book uh, as well in the horror radium. And these have really come out in the last few years because most publishers had not published, uh, the mainstream publishers certainly had not published horror comic books. DC and Marvel, I can't remember the last... In line comic book that you would call horror, they had Vertigo obviously, which I would I would say is less of a horror line than a fantasy line. You working at I don't even know what
3: Vertigo does anymore. Well, Well, they don't don't really
2: exist anymore. But I can't remember the last horror comic even that Vertigo did. It feels like Dark Horse and
3: Image are, but the Image is like the creator-owned structure. Um, so it has a pretty wide variety of stuff that they publish, but it tends to have some horror for sure. Corinne, yeah. um, what's
4: Glenn Danzig's? Uh, he has a horror comic. Well, oh, but he hasn't, put,
2: he hasn't put out stuff in quite a while. Yeah, he, I think it did. went
3: defunct in the 2000s, yeah. right? He's too busy yeah.
4: selling well, out selling stadiums with the Misfits. In Los mm-hmm. Angeles. All right, Corinne, um, I have a question for sure. you. Sure. So this is off the cover of Death. <laughs> death. There are many ways to die, all of them unpleasant. You can be devoured, cursed, poisoned, bedeviled, tortured, drugged, or transformed. Which would you prefer?
3: be go. drugged? <laughs> That's Fair enough. Not, that, sounds, uh, <laughs> that sounds maybe the least horrible yeah, of that I think I'd list. be
4: bedeviled myself. Bedeviled, you are yeah. deviled.
3: Yeah. I mean, I already am. So,
4: so tell us about <laughs> this book.
3: Um, so I bought this book. Uh, I brought a couple of um, short fiction, uh, horror, uh, examples. I brought Ray Russell, Haunted Castles, Thomas Ligotti, Songs of a Dead Dreamer, and Scribe. And then this one is, um, a vintage anthology. So it's got a lot of different authors. And I picked it up at, um, Bucket of Blood, which is one of my favorite bookstores and my favorite stores in Chicago. Um, it has a bunch of different, um, Authors in it, Lord Dunsany, Fritz Lieber, Stephen King, more. But I love, um, I collect uh, vintage horror paperbacks. I, I collect um, a lot of um, vintage publications in general, um, you know, horror comics. I collect vintage smut, and I really like, you know, horror sci-fi paperbacks and i particularly love when it's like one of these anthologies that has they pick a topic that covers amazing yeah i know isn't it great this one is called death i have one called terror you know there's ones that'll be like biological horror like plants that are gonna kill you and um, i just like to get as many horror stories at my fingertips as possible
4: i have one more quick question i'll turn it over to mike is ray russell the, the one that did the possession book that came out prior to rosemary's baby
3: I'm not sure. He did Sardonicus. That's his most famous story okay. that got turned into that William there Castle a, movie.
4: There was a book that came out from Penguin, and it was about a possession that was supposed to be the inspiration for like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, and I can't mm-hmm. remember the name of it. But I'm not oh.
3: sure if it's Ray Russell.
4: Okay.
1: Couple of questions, Corinne. Sure. I was I was looking at the history of your work, the archives on your website, which mm-hmm. we'll, I guess we'll we'll mention that at the end of the show. Sure. Um, but it looks like you've gone through different periods of what you were interested in and what you wanted to draw or write or paint. Um, can you talk about some of those phases and, and where you're at now? And then quick uh, follow-up question. There's a, there's a design in some of your religious imag- imagery. Mm-hmm. that's like it's a Mobius strip with a cross. Are you talking about this? An orth- yeah, an orthodox cross coming so, out of it. What is the that? That's a
3: symbol for sulfur. Oh, okay. uh it, Anton LaVey claimed it as the satanic cross, but that's kind of like a controversial thing. Like, people are either really into that idea or really against it. But it's like the alchemy symbol for sulfur. Sulfur, yeah. Okay. And it's been, you know, a symbol that is connected to satanic imagery, largely because of Anton LaVey, but also because of a lot of heavy metal bands um, kind of claiming it.
4: Well, there's a lot of controversy about LaVey, whether he was a fraud or not, anyway. For sure. who, Who is he? He was the founder of the Church of Satan, which is now run by his daughter, right? Zena actually, I think, broke from the Church of Satan.
3: Yeah, she goes by Zena Shrek now. Yeah. She doesn't. She got married, and I did don't... she marry Shrek? I think so. <laughs> she married the Shrek the Ogre. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's an artist. Okay, um, but I'm pretty sure she goes by Zena. Yeah, Shrek. I she.
4: I think that she uh, distanced herself after her father passed away. I have an yeah. excellent. I don't. You might have a Two of the Oregon album by him.
3: Ooh, I don't. Yeah, I have yeah. a digital.
4: I can you talk about your work though.
3: Oh yeah. I have that California Infernal book that's all the pictures of Anton LaVey and Jane Mansfield. Yeah, and, and Sammy s- Davis Jr. That's right. so wow. It's yeah. a great
4: Sammy book. Davis Jr. was involved with the Church of Satan. There's a great picture of uh, Poison Idea uh, 80s punk bandit a, a t-shirt. It was Anton LaVey and Sammy Davis Jr. just said, Hail Satan. It was, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty amazing.
3: I mean, I think my work uh, has obviously changed and evolved over the years, but I've always been kind of interested in the same subject matter, and I've I've always been drawn to um, like more transgressive work or like the taboo. I think being raised Catholic and you know the tremendous amount of guilt that is poured into you through that system, um, it, it, to me, it kind of made me want everything that I'm not supposed to want, if that makes sense. Oh, you know? there's, there's a great... Uh,
1: <laughs> I don't know if it was a painting or, or uh, drawing or what it was. There's, it's a Minnie Mouse with... A profile of Minnie Mouse with her the paint running.
3: Oh off yeah, of her yeah. Face.
4: Totally. Paint. Is that corpse paint?
3: Oh What's oh that? oh. So We're I did a that. whole um, series called um, M oh, is for murder. M is for murder, yeah. and that was a solo show I had at a place called the Peanut Gallery, which now all the members of Peanut Gallery that space closed, and then one of them reopened it, and now I think it's got a new name, and it's like down on California, near California and Chicago. I'm not sure of the... It might be called Happiness. I, I Don't quote me on that. But anyways, in, I think it was 2012, I had a solo show there. And it's like, basically, the the narrative was that Minnie had an affair with Goofy and Mickey <laughs> kind of flipped out and murdered them. And that was the kind of like, the narrative of all the paintings. So it's kind of like, you know... Disney Have you pitched gone. that story to Disney yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm terrified of Disney. Actually, we did a zine that is now out of print that is... You've seen the animated Robin Hood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, I, I watched it show. hundreds of times when I was a kid. I adore that movie, and he also adored that movie. I know the
4: song, but I'm not going to sing
3: it. <laughs>
4: Robin Hood and Little John walking through the
3: forest. Yes, yeah. and... um. Every town. I love that song. Um, uh, but uh, So we did a kind of like sexy Robin Hood zine that we didn't really post many pictures of it online because I'm just afraid of Disney.
2: It's interesting you bring that <laughs> up because the other major comic censorship case involved Disney. It was the Air Pirates, which was done by underground cartoonists in the 1960s. They published a series of semi-pornographic tales of Mickey Mouse, Uh Stealing airplanes and going to Mexico <laughs> <delivering> <laughs> sounds
3: like something Mickey would. Delivering do. <laughs> drugs and
2: uh, some famous cartoonists actually worked on it, uh, but they were sued to stop the production of it. And what's interesting is the the guys um, lost every court case they had with the air pirates, and he never stopped printing them. Like he, he oh, wow. lost all the way through, and he's he was bankrupted eventually. The guy apparently is very—I don't remember the man's name—but a very strange person. Um, but the original issues of the Air Pirates were, were considered to be fairly interesting. Pretty pretty cool stuff. Um, there's also, and I, I I can't go too deep into this, but there's a long history of Disney animators making um, extremely explicit drawings of the Disney characters oh, and passing it. them around. Oh, that's, one like, guy, that's the best. One guy, <laughs> I got, I, I'll see if I can describe this in a radio-friendly way. One of the people on the <laughs> Hanna-Barbera cartoons was actually fired because... They inserted a cell of Fred Flintstone and uh, Betty Rubble um, making love. Yes,
4: making love with I I think
2: on like on Wilma the robot from the Jetsons. Oh, awesome! You got to get her involved. Making double love. He left it in a cell though, like he had drawn the cell and it it got shot into a frame. So... It's like every kid would... Mr. J. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, he was he was fired for his artwork. When um,
1: you were young, you would watch and rewatch those Disney movies with the, like, Little Mermaid had a scene like that, <laughs> Lion King had a scene like that. Oh, yeah, they always have some
3: very phallic, yeah. you know, yeah. situation happening. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, mean, that's boy. the only way you, like, suffer through a job like that, right? <laughs> it is true, apparently. <laughs> Gotta slip a uh, phallic symbol in. You've got to.
2: Um... We've got some questions coming up, and sure. we'll get to that in a second. But I will, We only I will, have one, so... Well, we got one question. we got more than done. Um, but I did want to get back to the kind of modern stuff. I mean, yeah. Al, Al Columbia, um, somebody that's very influenced by 1930s cartoons, specifically Fleischer cartoons, mm-hmm. and Betty Boop, uh, Cullen Bunn, Guy Davis is a very interesting stylist. The one, the one thing that's changed um, from the 1950s to the present day is that these tales are now being told in very distinctive and um, personal artistic styles. Yes. As opposed to, I think what we, t- we saw was a very assembly line, clean line style. Yes. Do you think that this shift in, in comics in general um, has resulted in them kind of gaining what little popularity comics have nowadays? Because while comics and graphic novels are fairly highly circulated, uh, you know, I think the librarian can attest to that, yeah. the actual comic books themselves sell very, very poorly.
3: Well, so there's a couple things to consider here. I mean, I have... There's, um, like, a little, like, pulp version of... I think it's Vault of Horror. Mm -hmm. And none of the artist names are listed anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have to consider, like... You know, here I see Ghastly. I don't know if that's because of it's a reprint, but I feel like I don't know what kind of credit those guys got, and I don't know what kind of pay those guys got. So, Lousy. So Lousy, I, I think, yeah. you know, it was a raw deal. While they were making some of the best horror artwork out there, they were not really getting compensated for it or any of the artistic credit for it. So a very good thing is now that uh, in modern days, you can publish stuff yourself, and you can give yourself as little or as much credit as you want. Um, In terms of, like, making money in comics, I mean, it's kind of like making money in any art form these days is very difficult, and you have to just work your butt off and, you know, have a good product, have a good... Uh, you know, have an audience, I suppose, and there are some people that are making a decent living uh, making comic books. I consider myself personally an artist first and foremost, illustrator who makes comics, so I'm not trying to, like, make my entire career on comics, and I just, unfortunately, I'm sad to say this, I think that is a very difficult thing to do and you know it really depends on what you want out of life you know do you want to self-publish and have you know make runs of 200 that you get out to an audience that really appreciates it do you want to try and shoot for image to have them pick up one of your projects and you could get handsomely you know compensated for that if everything lines up you know uh but you gotta hustle you know um so i think the good thing is um Like you're saying, um, the artist can uh, be... It's more well-known who the artist is, and it is much more personal. It's often, you know, their personal passion project, Uh, whereas back in the day, it's like these guys weren't getting basically any credit or right. much money. It was
2: work for hire, too. Yeah. You know, this was all produced, and they didn't own any of the rights to it. Al Columbia owns the rights to his. So. Exactly. And Colin Bone owns the rights to Harrow County. He can make a movie if he exactly. wants to. Uh, Graham Ingalls, I believe they got paid $2 a page.
4: Oh, my yes. god!
2: Yeah, I believe that's what the, the page rate was, was pretty low. Yeah. So, interesting. We do have one question. Somebody, actually, we were talking about Vertigo before. You know, I did forget um, about Hellblazer. Which was the last, I think, you know, Swamp Thing and then Hellblazer, which spun off from that. Um, somebody does ask what, what you think of the John Constantine and Hellblazer comics.
3: So I have not read much of Hellblazer. Um, I am a huge Preacher fan. I know it started with Garth Ennis, right? Mm-hmm. And Steve Dillon?
2: Preacher did. Hellblazer started with Jamie Delano and it spun out of the Alan Moore Swamp Things. But what era he'd... has
4: Preacher come out?
3: But I thought Wait, Garth man. Ennis and oh. Steve Dillon did some of Hellblazer. They
4: did, but it was Jamie.
2: Delano it was later. Was, yeah, Jamie. Okay, Delano was the first writer on
3: it. Yeah, I who's she,
2: totally forgotten. The only reason I've remembered this guy's name is because it matches mine. Okay,
3: so, yeah. so I want to get into Hellblazer, but I feel like. Um, So I work at Quimby's, right? We do carry comics, but we're more of a small press store. And so we have one little section that has the DC Marvel image, Mm -hmm. dark horse stuff. The rest of the stuff we're going to have is going to be like Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, all the more uh, independent uh, comics companies. So Hellblazer is such a huge body of work. And I don't know where to begin because they've published them in different runs so i mean i keep trying to get into hellblazer but i don't know what book to start with because i don't want to i don't want to buy the first tpb and then find out like you know i'm reading the wrong run of them does that make any sense if you go to the store there's like what's a tpb trade paperback oh there'll be like literally 30 hellblazer trade paperbacks and so i don't know i personally
2: think you can kind of jump in anywhere on the, on the character you know, I mean, he's a guy from Newcastle who smokes a lot. Yeah. You know, there's not, not a lot of depth there, guys.
3: <laughs> what, what era was Preacher? The Preacher? 90s. Was
2: 90s. Okay. Yeah. Nineteen ninety ninety
4: one. Because I've seen the show, but I've never read it. Yeah. yeah. It's the same, right? The show? It it
2: is, well, they change on, a lot of stuff. It's based on yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Steve Dillon, unfortunately, just passed away too suddenly. Uh, yeah. Earlier this year, he was the artist of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um with that, where, where can people find out more about your work, Corinne? Do you have a website that yeah. you tell people about? What is it?
3: Um, so it's just my name, which is CorinneHalbert.com. So it's C-O-R-I-N-N-E-H-A-L-B-E-R-T.com. Uh, I, on Instagram, I just go by my name, Corinne Halbert, and um, I have a big cartel store where I sell uh, my line of merchandise, original paintings, prints, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff.
1: You said you have a new... New comic?
3: Yes, I'm really excited. And I was hoping that I could bring a copy to show you. Um, I have a brand new horror comic that I'm going to debut um, at Short Run in Seattle next month. Um, it's called Cursed Woman. And it's uh, heavily based on the films of Jean Roland, um, Fascination, and Living Dead Girl specifically. Uh, French erotic horror filmmaker. Um, Contemporary or- Uh, Well, he's dead. Uh, Late 70s, early 80s are the films that I'm specifically looking at. Um, And so there's two longer stories. Uh, One is 14 pages, one is four pages, and then there's just a couple of short vignettes. So it's a 32 page, and it's my first color. It's red, black, and and white. white. I've done all black and white. (laughs) Uh, There's uh, some erotic vampire stories. Yes, it's Blood Red.
4: (laughs) I have to ask you this. Sure. Because we're talking about French horror. Have you ever seen Martyrs? Oh,
3: you know, that's so funny because I have a list of movies that I'm specifically avoiding. And that is at the top of the list. Because I like Sleazy. I like, you know, I don't mind if there's like cruelty in a film. But that... I know the plot it's and I know what a it's a great
4: litmus test for how messed up you uh, are. It's one of I don't my favorite wanna, movies. I don't so.
3: want s- <laughs> to see it. So, gotcha, oh, dear. Like, it's just life is harrowing enough. I if don't know if you're a, a horror buff
4: and you can handle anything. I highly, highly recommend Mario. I watched that with my old roommate. He just looked at me he's like, What is wrong? <laughs> <laughs>
1: can, can we even talk about what it's about
2: on there? Let's, not. Let's uh, we're, not. We're also yeah. out of time, guys. Yeah, so, yeah. I want to remind everybody uh, next week is Rolling Kitchens, right? on our show uh, the 28th 28th is next well that will be when you if you're listening to the show on sunday oh the yeah. following sunday the next episode, yeah. ronald, kitchens. ronald kitchens ronald kitchens we'll be with him and then uh we are off next month because it is thanksgiving so we're not on the third thursday at pills and community books
4: we're on the fourth thursday oh that's correct and we'll have a, we have a big guest we have a big guest
2: how do you say her last name mary Rebecca Mackay. Yeah. She was just shortlisted for the National Book Award for the Great Believers. She'll be live here in this very room. You will want to reserve a seat because it's going to, you know, not have a lot of room. So, with that, for all of us at I 94, I want to please ask you one more time to give a warm Pills and Community Books thank you very much to Corinne Halbert. Thank, thank you, you
3: so much. Thank you. Thanks, uh, yeah, so, so fun. fun.
0: I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Corinne Halbert in discussion of horror comics. This episode was originally taped in front of a live studio audience at Pilsen Community Books on October 18th and first aired on October 21st, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye 94org For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.